millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back once more to Signals to Danger, the podcast which explores the history of our nation's railways and its darkest days. My name is Dan Fox, the producer of Signals to Danger, and also a full-time employee for a UK train operating company. I'd like to take this opportunity to quickly thank those of you who support the podcast, either through Patreon or through donations and purchasing merchandise, things like that. All very much appreciated. With that brief introduction out of the way, and I say with that brief introduction out of the way because this is actually the third time I've recorded it now, having got about a quarter of the way through the episode before I realised I was picking up a really annoying humming sound that is definitely gone now and I hope won't come back. But anyway... With the introduction out of the way, let's roll the credits and travel back to 1989 as we head up to the Glasgow suburb of Belgrove. much further ado let's proceed now cities up and down the uk rely on public transport to move people around it really is a bit of a no-brainer cars well they're still frustratingly rule supreme in smaller towns and rural areas but actually they're just impractical once you hit the scale of a city now despite the fact i blatantly favor trains i do sometimes find myself in the unenviable position of needing to drive into the cities closest to me manchester and leeds and actually both of them have major trunk roads, kind of motorways, which try to funnel you into the midst of the buildings. Make no mistake, nobody is achieving motorway speeds. 
And at some point you get spat off these big major trunk roads into suburban sprawl. The simple fact is that these cities, which have grown up over a long time throughout the UK's rich industrial heritage, well, they weren't designed for every man and his dog and his cat, budgie and goldfish to have their own car and to want to travel in and around them in that way. Traffic jams, traffic lights, roadworks, well, they're just about the most efficient way of stopping cars and prolonging journeys. I really don't believe that Just Stop Oil can do a better job of holding people up than the sheer quantity of vehicles can. And that's before you even start to consider the joy. Joy, he says, that is finding somewhere to park the damn thing. And actually parking it isn't the hard bit. Paying for that parking in the city centre, that's the bit that's going to give you a heart attack. If I did have to drive into the office, and I do occasionally, um, there is a certain company renowned for operating inner city car parks who would uh, gladly loan me a rectangle of their tarmac located right next to our offices for the princely sum of 30 quid a day. Not a chance that is a find a cheaper car park and walk situation, but that car park, it's pretty full every day. Um, Well, with all of these expenses and challenges stacked against us, it is no surprise that I would categorically advocate for using public transport to make our way around built-up areas. Like I said, it is a no-brainer. Buses, trams, trains, well, they can move 50, 100, 300 cars worth of people at once. That's got to be good for congestion, good for convenience, and for the environment, all at the same time. That isn't to say that all cities are created equal when it comes to public transport. Buses, they're almost present in every case, including smaller towns and other more rural areas, and they're quite numerous in cities. And you're also going to find trams in cities like Nottingham, Sheffield and Manchester and Leeds in the near future. If you uh, if you listen to and bought into the party conference speech that we all had to suffer, sorry, listen to last week, well, not last week, two weeks ago now, ish. But this is a rail based podcast. So we want to talk about where other rails come into play. And metros, they're a big role in the field of mass transit in cities like Newcastle. So the Tyne and Weir Metro serving Newcastle, Sunderland, North Shields and the surrounding areas. And of course, we have to add underground railways into the mix. None so prevalent or well known, I imagine, as the underground in London. But that's not the only underground in London, not the only subway, which serves as a nice segue into the next location that I want to discuss. One other UK city which has its own underground railway is Glasgow. The Glasgow subway is a single double track loop of just about six miles in length, connects areas of the centre of the city with 15 stations around its route. It's a quaint little railway with small narrow gauge trains and, well, it's almost like a mini tube and it holds an affectionate place in many people's hearts, my own included. But while Glasgow is where we want to spend this episode, we're not going to be spending our time on the little underground, because Glasgow excels in one area of transport more than a lot of other cities, commuter suburban rail. Many other cities have a few railway lines leading into the centre, stopping at maybe five or six locations on the way in, other towns or cities, other select corridors, but Glasgow and the wider Greater Glasgow area well, that is pretty well serviced with trains. In fact, by my count, the Greater Glasgow area has about 60 stations that you would class as being within the city and its suburbs where people live and commute in. Not even counting those 15 subway stations. 
And the city also has two major railway stations as well, each of them serving as the terminus of the main line. Glasgow Central facing south is the northern terminus of the West Coast main line. And Queen Street facing north sees the end of the Edinburgh to Glasgow via Falkirk line. But they're not the only lines serving the city, or indeed the stations. Both are served by low-level platforms at a right angle to mainline platforms. So Queen Street has got the North Clyde line and Central the Argyle line. Heading out to the west, these two join as the North Clyde line and continue along the river till Helensburg, close to the point where the line junctions off into one of the most picturesque railways in the world, the West Highland line which I was actually lucky enough to experience some of um, over the summer this year, really appreciated the opportunity to get out there. I really could talk for a whole hour about that railway, but we don't have a whole hour to, to put into that um, alongside the actual rest of the episode. So I won't on this occasion waste too much of your time banging on about it, but it is as good an argument as any for me covering the uh, 2010 Falls of Kraken derailment at some point in the future. And I also promise that I will research how to pronounce that properly before I cover it in an episode. Today, however, we are interested in the North Clyde Line, uh, but not to the west of Queen Street, to the east. When trains leave in this direction, they're heading out as far as Edinburgh, uh, but along the way they'll serve the eastern suburbs of the city. From Queen Street, the trains first call at High Street before the next station, where the line splits and a branch leads trains away towards Springburn. This junction is going to feature heavily in today's episode. And the station where it splits off from the main line? Well, that would be Belgrove. The junction at Belgrove Station, where the Springburn branch departs from the line to Helensburg to Airdrie, is unsurprisingly known as the Belgrove Junction. Very unimaginative, but quite often rationale is the railway, of course. The area of track had seen some changes in the time approaching 1989. A fine year, I hasten to add, in fact the one that this podcaster started to roam the earth. But not really important to tell that story today. In earlier years, the main line here had been made up of four tracks, but recent changes had been made which uh, changed the layout. A goods yard had been ripped up at High Street, that next station to the west, and no doubt a result of the reduction of goods being delivered by train in favour of the ever-growing fleet of road vehicles. This change meant that the lines in the area were altered, with the two northernmost of the quad-track layout being removed in 1987, downgrading the line to a double-track section. And this might feel like a bit of a fruitless task. Why not leave it with four until you need the space, I hear you cry. In fact, there are places up and down the country where lines have either been doubled from quad or singled from double track sections where the space is left for the larger layout. There is a reason for this, and it relates to the actual miles of track that are on the ground, or you could say metres, kilometres, yards, or if we're going to be fancy, even chains. Whatever the unit of measurement, the distance of track in place is important here. Let's take a fictional theoretical 10 mile section of line as an example. 
on a single track railway that is in fact 10 miles of railway. But a double track railway, that's actually 20 miles of railway. And the quad track, well, that's 40 miles. 40 miles of sleepers, clips, signaling equipment, track circuits, uh, TPWS grids, AWS signaling equipment, everything. In fact, there's actually 80 miles of actual steel rail. So when an opportunity arises to reduce the number of tracks due to a reduction of use of redundant infrastructure, such as the goods yard at High Street, well, I suppose you can understand the logic. To leave it in place would mean it would need to be maintained and inspected and all of that good stuff at the appropriate frequencies. It's the reason so many smaller lines, such as the Penniston line between Huddersfield and Sheffield or the Esk Valley line between Middlesbrough and Whitby, have single line sections now that weren't originally single lines, they were originally double tracked. It was just cheaper to rip up one of the lines in certain areas, maintain a quarter of the track distance, half the platforms and have less signalling to worry about. I can't tell you I agree with the indiscriminate application of the principle, but I do understand the logic. My personal thoughts, however, is that singling a line to the point where it becomes operationally challenging, well, that's a hard sell, and it makes it incredibly difficult to try and re-implement service improvements in the future without major capital works projects. And that is a heck of a lot of business speech for 12 minutes into this episode. <laughs> Later in 1987, returning to the story, a major resignaling scheme was undertaken in the area, and with all of the work being undertaken to modernise and update the area, the junction itself also was modernised towards the Springburn branch. As part of this upgrade, the, the junction was turned into what we call a single lead junction. And for that to make sense to people, it might just be sensible to start briefly talking about the types of railway junctions. Although this might be one of those times that I advise you to go away and look at some diagrams just to really get your head around it. There is some helpful ones in the appendices of the Belgrove Accident Report. In circumstances where we have two lines, say for example an up and a down line, branching off as another double track section, so another up and down line, um, there are several ways that this can be done. The first is probably the most simple to describe and it's known as a double junction. The report refers to it as a type 1 double junction. If you were to draw this two track branch off a two track main, then it's likely what you would just sit there and draw. If I said, here's a piece of paper, draw two tracks coming off two tracks. This is what you would pull out probably and me initially. The fancier way that this is described in the report is known as a double junction with fixed obtuse crossings or switch diamonds. And in this section, to make it easy to explain, because this is very much one of those visual explanations in an audio format, and I'm never quite sure how they're going to lie. I really do try my best to do them. But in essence, we're going to call the, the line on the side that is diverging, the outside line, and the other one the inside line. And it means that the outside track, closest to the side branching off, simply has a set of facing points that take that line off the main. And the inside line, that has another set of facing points that lead it towards the diverging direction. But of course, there is an obstruction in the way there, the outside line that needs crossing. So to cross that line, you need one of two solutions. Fixed obtuse crossings or switched diamond crossings. More complicated engineering with some limitations, although not engineering that we're incapable of creating. It's worth noting, however, in this case, a traditional double junction would see a limitation of 30 miles an hour with, uh, with those fixed obtuse angled crossings. 
Now, there are two alternative ways of doing this. The first, this is known as the parallel junction. In this arrangement, the outside line is first taken off the main by a set of points and then carries over onto the diverging route. The inside line then crosses over onto the outside line by means of a normal traditional crossover before that too is then taken off to the sides by means of another set of points and continues off on the diverging route. So you almost have this small section where the outside line becomes the inside line for trains that are coming off the junction. It's Again, please go and have a look at a diagram if you want to get your head around any of this. So that layout, that features the same number of point ends and crossings as a switch diamond would, but that actually allows you to increase the running speed through the section. Um, the downside there is the width of line that's required. So for some brief distance there, your track actually essentially requires to be three tracks wide after that outside track's taken off first, before the branch heads off on its alternate diverging route. And after that first line comes off, it's got that three track layout. Um, it provides a speed improvement, but it requires additional space that might not actually be present where you want to put this track in. Which leads us to have a look at the last option, the single lead junction. In this arrangement, the line singles for a brief period to facilitate the branching of the junction. So the inside line crosses over onto the outside line, which then sees one set of points, a single set of points, which takes the tracks off in the diverging direction. And then another set of points separates it back out into two lines. So you only actually have one set of facing points that take the, the, the tracks away from the main line onto the branch and a crossover, which ties them onto that one. So it takes the same number of points and crossings, but it increases the speed of the junction without the need to increase the footprint that the railway requires in the area. So I'm sure you can see the appeal to this option, however unintuitive it might feel. In fact, there were eight reasons that British Rail gave for the preference of single lead junctions from the perspective of civil engineering at this time, and I won't give you all of them, but they included factors such as easier alignment maintenance, switch diamonds there, generate difficulty for packing of sleepers, the removal of short rail lengths that were found in those double junctions, and actually the increased use of standard components in a single lead junction, because a double junction, that type one, that actually used more bespoke solutions. There was a lot of track work and points and things like that that were being built specifically for this location, whereas a single lead junction could allow you to use a bit more off-the-shelf components. So this probably won't come as any surprise after that little liturgy to, to single lead junctions that the British Railways Board decided in April of 1987, when the major resignaling work was being done in the area, that that junction would be transformed into a single lead variant. This means that trains leaving and entering the branch line from the main line shared a single line section of track as part of that manoeuvre, which was operated bi-directionally and completely under the protection of the signalling system. And actually, this might have felt a little bit tangential, but uh, it's important to have the understanding of what a single lead junction looks and feels like as we move into the next stage of our storytelling and the afternoon of the 6th of March, 1989.
The suburban service around Glasgow in 1989 was a well-timed and frequent service, with trains passing through Queen Street every 10 minutes. For those going to and from the east of the city, every half hour saw two of them continue on the main, and one diverted up the branch to Springburn. So that was a twice an hour service to the branch and its stations at Barnhill, Alexandra Parade and Duke Street, as well as at Springburn itself. Prior to the realignment of the tracks and the reconfiguration of the junction, it was a common occurrence for inbound and outbound trains to actually pass each other when they went through the junction. With the introduction of the single lead, it was necessary to modify that timetable slightly, and as such, down trains were then timed to leave Belgrove Station, um, after they'd cleared the junction, one minute before the up train that was headed for the branch. And it was on this morning that we're going to join one of the suburban services through Glasgow, starting in the town of Milgai, which is confusingly spent, spelt with an N and a V. So a really, really big thank you to a listener who queued me up to look at that before I started recording this episode. So the 1220 Milgai to Springburn service, 2Alpha02, was composed of a single electric multiple unit, a three-car class 303. Worth mentioning that even in 1989, these units were no spring chickens, having been built in between 1959 and 1961, and they'd been serving the railways around Glasgow for the entire time. In fact, 50 of the 91 had just begun a modernisation and refurbishment process in 1984, around, the, around their quarter-century birthday. This refurb tackled um, pressing issues such as removing asbestos installation, but also many other changes were introduced, including connecting doors between coaches, a new type of push-button passenger door control, all new interiors and new fluorescent lighting. And most units also received new hopper-style windows that I'm sure many of you can remember, um, or you know, just get on some of the northern units and you'll still see them. But by far the most upsetting change for the more enthusiastic passengers on the network was the removal of a glass bulkhead behind the driver, which actually removed this type's unique provision of driver's eye views from the front seats in the saloon. Something I would love to have seen, potentially not during the events of today's episode though. Following this refurb, the units were also painted in a striking orange and black livery representative of the newly created passenger transport executive covering the area, SPT, or Strathclyde Public Transport. And the passengers of 2Alpha02 were travelling on one of these newly refurbished sets as their train left Milgai on the 6th at 12.20. At the head of this train was Joseph McCafferty, the driver of this particular 303. But of course, with the service frequency which we've talked about here in the late 80s Glasgow, it isn't the only train in the area on that day. In fact, it's not even just the Lilone Class 303, because the 91-strong fleet formed the lion's share of trains on the North Clyde Line. At 12.39, another Class 303, this one driven by 62-year-old Hugh Keenan, left the platform at Springburn Station, heading back down the branch and across the city towards Milgai. Each of these two trains was about 200 feet long, weighing 118 tonnes, and consisted of a driving trailer in lead, a motor open brake carriage with another driving trailer in the rear. And by 12.40, they were both heading towards a meeting point in the vicinity of Belgrove Station. At around a quarter to one, McCafferty drew his train into Belgrove Station, and then shortly after, once the business of boarding and alighting had been taken care of, he drew the train out once more, heading out onto the branch line towards Springburn. 
leaving the platform as train drew out, first crossing over the trailing points which crossed over from the opposite track, before passing through the set of points that took him out onto the short stretch of single line, before that branch line once again split out into the up and down lines. The speed limit of 30 mile an hour in the area, and the quite quick acceleration of these light electric multiple units meant that McCafferty was paying close attention to the speedometer of his train, but then he heard a bang which he thought sounded like the result of points that had been set incorrectly. This brought his attention up to the window of the train, wherein he found the view to be somewhat surprising. To his left, he saw the line that he should be travelling on, and then his vision was drawn to the line in front of him, and was met with something equally unexpected and terrifying. The front end of Hugh Keenan's train heading towards him, on the line that he found himself upon. McCafferty slammed on the brakes, but it was too little too late, and the collision between the two trains, well it was inevitable. It was head-on, both were travelling at a combined speed of about 30 miles an hour, and as the two identical trains collided, the front of the up train, driven by McCafferty, rode up and over the headstock of the down train, driven by Keenan. This overriding caused significant damage to the leading ends of both vehicles, but Keenan's down train suffered the greater effects, with the driver's cab crushed and compressed into the passenger saloon directly behind it. This short and sudden stop brought both trains' journeys to an end in this cutting on the outskirts of Glasgow city centre, but it wasn't the only thing brought to an end. In the leading end of the down train, 62-year-old driver Hugh Keenan and a passenger who'd been sat in the carriage behind him, 58-year-old Robert McCaffrey, both found their lives brought to an untimely conclusion as a result of the injuries they'd sustained in the accident. The 6th of March was just another normal day on the suburban railways around Glasgow, with trains taking the same route they did every half hour, time after time with no incident. But for some reason, these two trains on this specific day met with an entirely different and deadly fate. aftermath of the disaster at Belgrove, it was key to understand what had taken place to lead to both trains occupying the same section of track. First and foremost, let's wind back to what we said earlier about the single lead junction at Belgrove. It was supposed to be fully protected by signals. When one train was meant to be on the section, others would be prevented by the signalling system from joining the line and entering into conflict. So we must start out by asking which of those two trains was actually supposed to be travelling through the section when the accident took place. Was it the up train, under the controls of McCafferty, or the down with the tragically departed Keenan at the controls? While the investigation clearly looked at the evidence of signallers, and the state of play of equipment on the ground, let's start out here by looking at another clue which we have to consider. The place where the actual accident took place. And we know there was three parts to this single lead junction, that crossover from the down to the up on the main, the single track section which branched off the up towards Springburn, and of course these were joined by the division of the single track section into an up and down branch line. 
The impact itself didn't take place on that short single track section, though it took place on the Down Branch, a short way onto it, where Keenan's train had been travelling. And for this accident to have taken place there, it's clear that the route was set for one train and not the other. It is possible to burst through a set of trailing points, but the facing points where McCafferty's train encountered the end of the short section of single line, this directed his train to the right and onto the wrong line, which means that they were set in that orientation and for Keenan's train leaving the branch, not his entering. And this was, of course, corroborated by the signaller in charge of movements over the junction, signaller Graham, who'd been working at the Belgrove box on the day in question. Speaking to investigators, he described the intricacies of signalling trains onto the Springburn branch and vice versa. An up train couldn't be signalled onto the branch unless the line was clear to a termination point of a specific track circuit, and a down train couldn't be signalled off the branch, and the points couldn't be reversed to set a route off the branch unless the protecting signals on the main line were at red, and that included Bravo Lima 6 on the up, which was the signal that sat at the up end of Belgrove Station's platform and controlled trains leaving that platform. This interlocking that was built into the system, that kept train movements divided and prevented signals from inadvertently setting opposing routes against each other. It also means that only one of the trains could have had a proceed aspect on the approach to the junction. The record in the downtrain register showed that Graham had accepted that downtrain from Sight Hill signal box by Bells at 12.40. So that Sight Hill is the first signal box down the branch line proper. But Mr. Graham thought it might have been a minute or two later, but the action of accepting that train would mean it was allowed to travel as far as Bravo Lima 2 signal at Duke Street Station, which is the last, last station on the branch line. And that signal, Bravo Lima 2, that controlled trains leaving the branch line. So they'd have to wait at Duke Street Station until they had a route all the way through onto the, uh, onto the main. At about quarter to one, Graham offered the train leaving the branch line forward to High Street on the main line, and this was accepted. And about the same time, High Street offered Graham the up train with the one driven by McCrafferty, which he accepted as far forward as Bravo Lima 6 at Belgrove Station. Graham makes a point here of stating that he had not offered the up train forward to Sighthill, and this was corroborated by the signaller at Sighthill. He knew that the down train would take priority because he'd already accepted it forward and offered it forward to High Street. The up train then came to a stand at Belgrove up platform, and then Graham set the route for the down train to leave the down branch onto the down main line. So he put the points on the single line to account for the down line, and then he reversed both ends of the crossover to direct the train onto the down main once it came off the branch. The route was fully set for the train leaving the branch, and with that done, he cleared signal Bravo Lima at 2 at Duke Street Station, which gave Keenan permission to proceed, which is what he did. Graham said he gave priority to the down train because it was due at Belgrove a minute earlier than the up train. Had it been a bit later, he might have been within his discretion as signalman to decide which train to go first, but he knew that the up train was sat in the platform at Belgrove, arguably he'd have a minute or so to get passengers on and off and do his thing, so he decided to set the route for the down train, entirely within his right, his prerogative as signaller to, to route trains and give them priority as he sees fit. But this is the point where everything went wrong. 
Having set the points, cleared the signal for the down train to proceed, Graham became aware that the train on the up platform was moving towards Bravo Lima at 6, the signal at the end of the up platform. Now, the train moving wouldn't be indicated to him by the signal panel until the train had actually passed the signal head, but he assumed that the driver was moving up to the signal post to get in touch with him on the signal post telephone. Perfectly reasonable, I suppose, to to drive the train up, then get out and then speak to him. But Graham was then horrified to see that the train didn't stop and continued on past the signal head. So we now know that the signals were definitely set one way, and one train had priority, at least so far as the signaller is concerned. What we need to have a look at now is whether the system actually performed as intended. A ScotRail permanent way engineer, Mr. S- Mr. K, gave evidence to the in- to the inquiry that a visual examination had been done of the track after the accident. He said that both of the switch rails at the points which would have had the down train cross onto the down main, they were consistent with the train having run through them when the points were set in reverse, which correlates with Graham's account that the route was set that way. And if the route was set that way, then arguably the interlocking would say that the signal had to be read. All of the equipment that was examined in the signal box, all of the, the levels and indications, they aligned with Graham's account. All the levers were where they would be if Graham had done what he said he had done. And they all aligned with the version where the down train was signalled and given priority. So the end result, Keenan had every right to be in section, McCafferty had none. So knowing all of that, we need to revisit the up train and try to understand what was going on and why McCafferty took his train where it didn't belong. Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There were two members of train crew on board the up train. One was in control of the movement, um, but another one was in control of the passengers and the running of the train. So let's take a look at the account of the second, the guard, Mr. Ben. Robert Ben was a railwayman of over 16 years' experience. 
He was the guard of the uptrain. He had nine years' experience as a guard, and as part of the investigation, he recounted the journey as far as the arrival into Belgrove. He described the early part of the shift on the day of the accidents, starting at 5.54 when he booked on with McCafferty, who he'd not worked with or actually met before. The journey sounds generally unremarkable, because they were delayed at one point because of a points failure at Rutherglen, but this was offset when they had a prolonged blurret break later on in the shift. And in Mr. Bain's opinion, McCafferty appeared perfectly normal. However, Bain did tell investigators that there were one or two things about his driving that Bain found a little unusual. And you know me and my opinions on these kinds of things, this is quite a regimented and dictated role with specific ways of doing certain things. I'm not sure that we like the description of unusual. I'm confident that an investigator might also not like the description of unusual, especially considering in the context it's being used, it kind of just sounds like a less critical way of saying wrong. At one point, Mr. Bain said, McCafferty asked whether the route for a down train would be via Yorker or Singer, something he should have been well aware of from his planned journey for the day. And in addition to this, on the arrival into Dalmuir, Mr. McCafferty appeared to accept without question that the train was signalled onto the down main platform instead of the bay platform that it was booked to. He didn't stop to query the route set by the signaller, he just went with it. And perhaps the biggest red flag. At Westerton Station, McCafferty departed the train when the signal changed from red to green, which initially might sound acceptable, but there's a process that should be followed here. McCafferty left without waiting for the bell signal from Mr. Bain. Bain hadn't given him this signal which confirmed that everything was fine. All the passengers on board okay, all the doors closed. Heck, Bain might not have even been on board the train at that time if he'd been off dealing with a passenger or a query um, or just still stood on the platform when that signal flipped over and McCafferty just left, start the train up and went. However, as he told investigators, Mr. Bain did not think that the driver had done anything dangerous at that point. Clearly didn't think he'd been out of process enough to flag either, but uh, that's possibly a conversation for another day or a railway of later time. Which brings us on to the events at Belgrove itself. Although I think there's already been somewhat of a catalogue of concern at this point with respect to the manner with which the train was being driven, but that's just me with hindsight, I suppose. Bain described how the train was signalled on the approach to the station, saying it was unusual for the train to proceed straight into Belgrove and that it was always stopped at the signal under the bridge before when there was a train coming off the Springburn branch. Following this comes the first openly admitted mistake of the day in question. Upon arriving at the station, Bain was to oversee the operation of passengers, making sure all got on and off safely, before giving the driver a bell signal to proceed away from the station. Two bells. Ding, ding. This was the cue for the driver to say that station working was complete, all aboard, all safe, crack on, let's go. But prior to giving two on the buzzer, Bain was supposed to check and ensure that the signal at the end of the platform was clear, but he didn't. From the rear of the train, he would have needed to walk out a fair distance to see Bravo Lima at six. Worth noting that this wouldn't have been as much of an issue on unrefurbed stock, as they had a nice guard compartment in the middle of the train, but this was eliminated as part of the, the new refurb. Bain pointed out that from his position in the rear cab, he couldn't see the signal at the station. The rule book required him to check the signal where 
practical. But in his opinion, the Belgrove signal could have changed by the time he got back into his cab if he'd walked out, looked at it, come back, gave a signal. Bain didn't believe that it was practical to apply the rule properly without a repeater signal on the platform, such as is provided at various other stations. Um, for the use of a guard, you'd be generally looking at an off indicator, um, literally a light that lights up and says off when the signal is off. And we know from previous episodes that off means clear, on means danger. Bain also stated that he'd received no special instructions as to what to do at Belgrove. And having had some time to think about it before speaking to investigators, he believed the reason that he might have not checked the signal was because the train had run straight into the station, and it was so unprecedented in his experience that he'd put it forward as an explanation, although he didn't say it was an excuse for failing to check the signal. Whatever the reason given, the result was the same. Bain said he shut the doors, gave the bell signal, and the train left. The next thing that happened was he heard a bang that sounded to him like a single detonator. Then he found himself lying on the floor of the cab. He picked himself up, went through the train to discover what happened, finding the lead vehicle inclined upwards and embedded in the front of another train. Knowing what took place at the rear of the train... It's finally time for us to assess what was happening at the other end, in the driver's cab, with McCafferty. McCafferty didn't actually give evidence at the public inquiry as he was unfit to do so due to the injuries he'd received. Um, He actually ended up losing a leg as a result of the accident. But some 23 weeks afterwards, he gave evidence to the investigators from his wheelchair. He had no misgivings concerning the handling of the train, the visibility on the day or the route from Nongai to Springburn. He claimed that over the course of the journey, he had no difficulty bringing his train to a stand at the three-car stop markers positioned at the various stations, and as far as he could remember, his train departed Queen Street at a low-level station on time, and then at High Street. He recounted how he'd acknowledged the signal from the guard, receiving the two bells, and said, I wouldn't move without them. He then recounted how he acknowledged the guard signal, repeating it, left the signal ahead, displaying what he said was two yellows. After some hesitation, he recalled that as he approached Belgrove Station signal, the signal before the station was initially at danger and he reduced his speed accordingly, but shortly before bringing his train to a halt, the signal changed to display a single yellow and he allowed the train to therefore run towards the station. And this is where his account becomes more interesting. Mr. McCafferty said that he saw Bravo Lima 86 change from red to green, accompanied by the feather. So that's the junction indicator saying that the route was set for the branch. And questioned further on this observation, his recall of events did not alter. In his words, the signal went straight to green. He went on to say that on previous occasions, his train had always been stopping when approaching the station. He thought nothing strange about the direct run into the station and considered that the train from Springburn, which usually he'd see in the opposite platform, was running late. In any case, McCafferty brought his train to a stand opposite the three-car marker that was on the platform to his right. He remained there for a normal amount of time, around a minute, and couldn't really recall what he'd done during the station stop. However, he admitted not having looked at the signal um, during the time he was at the station. And this is where we learn the context of the phrase ding, ding, and away. At this point, McCafferty said that he received two bells from BAME, and as a result, he gave two bells in acknowledgement. He didn't look back at the signal, said he didn't see the need. 
It was green before. Why won't it be green now? So he departed. Ding ding and away. It took 13 or so seconds for the train to accelerate from the stop board to the signal head itself and for some reason for that distance it was clear he hadn't looked up to see a red signal head because despite what McCafferty believes he saw as he arrived into Belgrove it was a red danger aspect as he departed and we know what happened next. Which does lead us to needing an answer to a question. Graham and McCafferty? Well we have two different accounts as to what Bravo Lima Essex was showing. McCafferty stated repeatedly that after passing signal, um, the signal beforehand, he saw that signal change from red to green, accompanied by the feather, and that's the root indicator lights indicating a route to the branch line. Signalman Graham, on the other hand, was equally adamant that at no time during the approach of Mr. McCafferty's train had he changed signal BL86, probably at 6 to green. Nevertheless, evidence collected from the scene following the accident showed that the route was set for the down train at the time. Other evidence was collected, including a uh, bit of information around a system called approach lock and the integrated timer there. That shows that if Mr. Graham had changed Bravo Lima 86 from green to red, it would have held the up route protected for almost two minutes before allowing the down route to clear. With all this in mind, investigators decided that the physical evidence better supports the account provided by Graham and not McCafferty. As such, the conclusion of the report lists the reasons for the accident as follows. We conclude that the immediate cause of the accident was that driver McCafferty drove the up train, number 2-Alpha-02, past Bravo Lima at 6, the starting signal at Belgrove Station, at danger. Contributed causes were that Guard Bain signalled the driver that the train was ready to start without having first checked the aspect of the starting signal Bravo Lima 86. That the rulebook on this point was not as clear as it should be, and that there was no other effective safeguard against a train starting at Bravo Lima 86 at danger. We do not consider that driver McCafferty was inadequately trained, or that signalman Graham's handling of the signals went beyond reasonable limits or discretion. As one final line in the conclusion, vindication was provided for one of the two victims of the accident. There was no evidence to justify any criticism of the conduct of driver Keenan, who sadly lost his life in the accident. This cemented Keenan's place as a blameless victim of the tragedy. is a term which you'll sometimes find enthusiasts and the media referring to. And the principle of the guard saying, it's clear, let's go, and the driver just accepting that and moving, was clearly a factor in the incident which took place at Belgrove Station. But you don't get well-known terms like this off the back of just one incident. In fact, since multiple units became a thing, this introduced a bell or a buzzer which guards used to communicate with drivers. And for almost as long as we've had multiple units, we've had incidents like this. In fact, as far back as 1948, incidents were taking place which fit nicely into this category. There was initially a debate as to whether guards should only give the ready-to-start or station staff 
the right-of-way signal if the platform starting signal was clear. The British Railways Board initially refused to change the rules, saying that the driver alone should have the responsibility to comply with signals. And again, initially, the railway inspectorate agreed, for example, as they stated in the report on quite an early example, at Woolwich Arsenal in 1948. That being said, the increasing number of accidents in the 70s, which culminated in seven people being killed at Paisley Gilmore Street in 1979, well, this caused the rules to be changed in 1980 with the effect that giving the signal to close doors, ready to start or right away, while the starting signal is at danger, now constitutes an operating incident. It is the responsibility of both the driver and the guard to check the signal, and indeed, where dispatchers are used, it's their responsibility as well. Mistakes happen, and it is entirely plausible that one person can have a momentary lapse and forget to check the signal. Heck, I've nearly done it when dispatching before. You see the time on the clock, you know it's due to go at that time, and that's when your process catches you. For some people, it might be risk-triggered commentary, you know, pointing at the red signal and going, that's red, I can't go. Or it might be something else. So for me, it was a fact that I had a system that I never took my baton out of the holster until I saw a green or yellow aspect. Until I saw that proceed aspect, the baton stayed in the holster. So when the time ticked over to the first tip time, I went for my baton. But the fact I had to take it out, clicked something, and I looked up and saw the red signal head. But if I hadn't, I'd have lifted the baton and blown my whistle. Well, that would have gotten me a report and a conversation with someone further up the chain, certainly. But the next slice of Swiss cheese was the conductor. And they also checked the signal, and they would have seen it was red, we hope. But if they'd just accepted my tip and closed the doors and then accepted my second tip and given the driver two on the buzzer... Then we're both in hot water filling out paperwork because the driver would also check the signal and he would see it's red. Ding, ding, no, away. Every time you add another layer of protection, you reduce the likelihood that it will all go wrong and lead to disaster. I mentioned Swiss cheese a few minutes ago and some of you will be aware of this concept, some of you might not be. Swiss cheese is a great analogy for risk management. If you think a slice of cheese with lots and lots of holes in it, every layer of protection has holes but you can only get an instant when all of those holes line up and a problem can get through all of them. So is there anything further that we can add into this system to protect further away ding, further against ding-ding and away instance? This is, of course, outside of the good old-fashioned rule but requirement for both driver and guard to actually check the signal and react appropriately. Signaling has given us some additional measures we can use. Firstly, we've got AWS, so that's the automatic warning system. On the approach to the station, this system would have provided drivers with a visual and audible warning that the starting signal was not showing a proceed aspect. And we'd hope that that warning would be fresh in their mind and when it came to time to depart, they would be diligent and check the signal head before accepting the right-of-way bell from their conductor. Then they would remember that on the approach, that signal was at danger. But under this system, we are relying on memory, which, when it comes to safety, is always a bit of a risky game. Memory is not infallible, save for a very small bunch of people who can boast an eidetic one. So is there anything we can introduce to help with this? Indeed, there is another slice of cheese we can introduce to the stack, and it might be the first time we've spoken about this one on the podcast, I'm not sure. It's the DRA, or the Driver's Reminder Appliance. The driver's reminder appliance is a manual switch in the driving cab of a passenger train and when it's operated it glows bright red and prevents the driver from being able to apply power. It's essentially a big red 
power button that temporarily cuts off the train from its controls. It was introduced in, de- in the design and operation of passenger trains in the 90s in a response to instance where train drivers had passed a signal at danger when starting away from a station, so exactly the type of incident that we're talking about today. There are a number of circumstances drivers need to use the DRA, and they include, so key to today's conversation, when they stop at a red signal or when they stop after passing a cautionary aspect. They come to a stand at the station platform, and then they press the button. This overrides the power inputs. They're not allowed to deactivate it unless the signal is cleared or they have permission to pass it at danger. Even if that proverbial body part is dropped and they hear the ding day, hear the ding ding, unless they deactivate the DRA, there is no away. Which brings us, um, I suppose, to what ifs. What if all of these things align and for some reason the driver, guard and dispatcher all neglect to check the signal and the driver autopilots DRA out of the equation? Is there another system which can help us to prevent disaster? Well, more abbreviations come to the rescue. And this is one that we've discussed previously. TPWS, the Train Protection and Warning System. The purpose of TPWS is to stop a train by automatically initiating a brake demand where the equipment's fitted if the train's done one of a few things. So, passed a signal without authority, uh, approached a signal at danger too fast, approached a reduction in permissible speed too fast, approaching buffer stops too fast as well. But clearly in these circumstances, it's the SPAD, the signal passed at danger, which we're wanting to focus on. Now, TPWS isn't designed to prevent them, but to mitigate the consequences of SPADs by preventing a train that has had a SPAD from reaching the conflict point after the signal. Should a train pass a TPWS-enabled signal at danger, on-train equipment will automatically demand an emergency brake application from the train and bring it to a stand. Paperwork and recorded conversations await all involved in a SPAD, and, well, drug and alcohol testing is more than likely for some players. But far better to have this after passing a signal by a few metres, without injury or damage, than realising your mistake after finding another train down the way a little. There is one more piece of signalling equipment I wanted to draw attention to, though, although TPWS has kind of reduced its role in the railway somewhat, and I'm not entirely sure, but I don't think they're still being installed, and a few examples, I believe, have actually been taken out since TPWS has sort of stepped into the breach. But it's the SPAD indicator. So following a series of high-profile incidents resulting from SPADs, a SPAD indicator was introduced as a secondary warning device to be placed ahead of selected high-risk signals. Oops. The signals involved have often tended to be platform starting signals that protect junctions, just like Bravo Lima, Bravo Lima 86. In normal circumstances, a SPAD indicator is unlit, but it will be activated in the event of an associated signal being passed at danger. SPAD indicators installed in the 1996 area were based around a conventional three-aspect colour light signal head with a distinctive blue backboard, so that would avoid them being mistaken as a a defective colour light signal when they weren't lit. All three lenses were red, and the middle one had the word STOP written across it. When activated, the top and bottom lights flash, and the middle light shows a steady red. Um, some of the later installations after 96, those omitted the word STOP on that middle lens, but you have the three signal headlights, um, middle one still remains solid red, and the top and bottom are flashing red. If you are a train driver, and you see that, you bring your train to a stand. It's not a uh, a good thing to see, but it does give this really clear, really visible, oh, something's gone wrong message. So if you are out and about on the railway and you ever do see one of these blue surrounded signal heads, you'll know what it is. And 
while we're on the subject, what was one location that received one? That's right. It was, in fact, Belgrove Station. conclusion of this week's episode. And while the story of McCafferty didn't quite end with the conclusion of reports and investigation into the accident, in something of a strange twist, despite the fact he was granted immunity from any criminal proceedings, McCafferty seemed to later go on, well, the offensive. While researching this episode, I found a Herald article from 1990 which details how McCafferty planned to sue British Railways. The article states that the lawyers for Joseph McCartney, who lost a leg in the crash, yesterday made clear their unwillingness to accept a finding which resulted in their client being made the primary scapegoat of the accident. The article went on to say that trade union lawyers Robin Thompson and partners, acting for Mr McCafferty, said a claim would be pursued against British Railways. This would provide this would be based on their failure to take reasonable care to provide him with a safe working system, adequate plant and equipment and safety measures, safe area of work, all at the Belgrove Junction, and for the failure of adequately instructed employees of the British Railways Board, including himself, and for the vicarious negligence of other employees of BRB. The action will involve damages sought for substantial pain and suffering, which he has undergone, and will continue to do so for the remainder of his life, loss of wages and services which have been required to be rendered to him by his family. Well, it's a really interesting concept, and I'm really keen to know whether that legal action was ever taken forwards and what the result is, but unfortunately... That article is the only report I was able to find from around 33 years ago on the subject, and unless someone out there knows more, I guess I'll never know. In any case, whether McCafferty and his lawyers believed that the circumstances around the accident had led him into making a fatal error as he departed Belgrove Station on the 6th of March 1989, I find it incredibly challenging that they saw fit to shift that blame onto the BR board. In the humble opinion of this podcaster... The blame lies with the two people who had a responsibility to check that they had signals to allow them to proceed. And I can make a level of excuse for Ben, who raises the ambiguous nature of the rulebook definition of guards, checking the signal when practical. Although I think that even 34 years ago you would struggle to make a strong argument that walking a little distance to check was an unreasonable ask, and nowadays it would just be the expectation. What I can't excuse is the inaction and lack of care which we can only conclude McCafferty demonstrated on the day. Bain gave the bells. He provided the ding-ding. But the away was all McCafferty. While Bain didn't check the signal, McCafferty was absolutely obliged to. And not only that, he had a clear view of it when stationary in the platform and for the 14 seconds it took him to reach it from his stopping point. A Rhodes policing officer would never accept me driving through a red traffic light because I was focusing on the speedometer or undertaking another driving task. I would be expected, and reasonably so, to observe every traffic light that I drove through. So for that reason, I don't necessarily think it's reasonable to accept that as a reason for missing a signal on the railway, as 
McCafferty said in his interviews. With all that in mind, I suppose my closing thought for this episode is that only one person was at the controls of the train on that day. They alone were responsible for reacting appropriately to signals as they drove that train. They had at their disposal the controls to start, stop, speed up, slow down, as well as the training and authority to control that train as required. And not only a duty of care over themselves, but everyone, not only on the three carriages behind him, but also on any other train that they might come across on that route. That person, McCafferty, failed in this duty. And as a result, one of his colleagues, as well as a passenger on that colleague's train, had their lives cut tragically short by what had been, up until that point, a perfectly normal Monday lunchtime in Glasgow. As ever, thank you for joining us for yet another episode of Signals to Danger. I love the interaction on social media, so come and find me at, at Signals to Danger or at Daniel Fox Rail on Twitter or Signals to Danger on Facebook. I'm also over on Instagram and TikTok, although you're not going to find me doing any of the dance moves over there that the kids seem to love so much. Don't forget, we've got some merchandise on sale, the link's on the social posts, and if you want to support the podcast, please look for us on Patreon or check out the support page of the website signalstodanger.com. With all that said... Until the next episode, travel safe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.